Okay, welcome to another edition of the Culture Class Podcast, a podcast where we get to interact with people from different backgrounds and get to learn about a host of other cultures. Um, you know, I've been doing this podcast now for two years plus. I think we're two years old in December last month. And uh, in all this time, uh, to be honest, I've been trying to look for an indigenous or Native American to interview. And I guess that wish was fulfilled today. So welcome to the podcast, Diana. Thank you. Thanks for reaching out. Most definitely. Um, b- before we, we started recording, we are just chit-chatting and you were saying how you were craving for snow. I was like, who are you? <laughs> you <know? laughs> who does that? <laughs> well, <laughs> I hardly get a chance to have my snow bath. Uh, it's, it's something Navajo people do is we, we uh, take snow baths. Nice, nice. And I saw that on, and it's interesting you said that because I saw a video about that on Twitter one time. And when you say snow bath, is this when they put the baby, kind of like roll them up in the snow a little bit, you know, kind of thing? That that That's an interesting place to start from. Because um, like I said, I was scrolling down Twitter one day, I think it was like a year ago, and someone was having a snow bath. And there were all these, um, I guess you can call them like, you know, norm, uh, I don't know, like white Americans or whatever, saying, no, how would you do that to a child? Like you're endangering the child. And there was, you know, a slew of Native Americans on the Twitter thread who went ahead to like educate people that know this is actually like some kind of ritual in our culture. And this is what it signifies and things like that. It just goes to show, because I'm Nigerian, right? And, you know, when people see us do things like, I don't know, eat some certain foods with our hands or, or you know, um, do different things, you know, they tend not to understand because I was not their upbringing. I'm sure we'll have a lot of conversations about that. But can you do a snow bat as an adult as well? Or yeah, yeah. So they're they're um they're definitely still practice. It's it's supposed to be something that you like begin as a young child and then you continue to do on into your older adults, even elderly years if you can, um, and and until you're comfortable. But yeah, we actually uh, myself and my family we did it earlier. Um, when New Haven had a snow maybe a couple months ago now. It's like in November. Oh wait. Yeah. So you can you can do a snow bath as a family? Is this supposed to be like every year, every five years? How does that go? It's supposed to be um after the first snowfall, um, you want to be able to go out with it's usually like the day or so after the first snow. Um and then you just basically we went out. I mean I didn't go like naked or anything. <laughs> I had like shorts and a tank top on. And we, you know, rub snow on our legs, we rub it on our stomachs, we rub it on our arms, up into our face, and then um, we roll in the snow a few times, or at least that's how I do it. Um, Nice, nice. Yeah, I'm sure no kid is going to complain about that one. (laughs) (laughs) But we did have some strange looks from the neighbors, but it was fine. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) Okay, okay, let's let's get into this. So let me start with your name, right? And I I intentionally didn't ask you this, because I I think I want to get it right. Let me see if I can pronounce this is right. So your first name is Diana and your last name is Onko Ngiadet. I don't know if I got that right. Unfortunately, no. Oh my goodness. How close? (laughs) How close? Um, (laughs) Not close at all. I'll introduce myself really quickly if that's all right with you. Um, So I said my name in there. I don't know if you caught it. Mm -hmm, I did. The first part of it. Yeah. So our introductions um, for the Neh people, so for Navajo people, we um, are a matrilineal society. So what we do is we introduce ourselves um, giving our clan, our, our maternal clan. 
And so I was telling you in Navajo that my mother is which is read people. Um, and so, you know, that's that's the line that my family comes from. And then um, I'm born for, which is my father's side, Comanche or Numina. And so um, we're basically giving our mother's side, our father's side, and then we give our maternal grandfather and our paternal grandfather. So um, that is something that a lot of um, Diné people do. And we do that so that we can see who our family is in the room. Um, but we also want to see like, I think the other part is like, you want to see who you're related to. So you don't like, you can see who you can date. <laughs> you know? Oh, got it. Got like, it. Mar- you don't want to be related to anybody. <laughs> interesting. That's, that's pretty interesting. But do you have to start with your mother's side? Is there a particular significance about like your maternal lineage in the Navajo tribe? Yeah, yeah, we're because we are a matrilineal society. The clan is um is what's passed down from from mother to child. So the, that mother's clan is like the primary identifier. And so um, I said I was look at Dene, and so anyone else that I meet in this world who is look at Dene, they're considered my family. They're like automatically we're just we're we're kin. We're, no matter how far removed that person is, if it's your sisters, uncles, daughters, you're just automatically kin. Yeah, yeah. I actually had a student. I had two students um, that are at Yale, and they're both related to me. <laughs> so I was like, Interesting. Oh, okay. Nice. <laughs> wow, that's that's pretty. So that means everyone is, I guess that makes sense, because like in the natural sense of the world, even though a lot of people like rationalize this with nuclear family, like everyone is still part of some larger family, sometimes that they are not even aware of that kind of thing. So I guess that's just a way of, of keeping everyone together. Well, OK, OK, let's 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 get into this real quick. We just uh, let you guys have a taste of <laughs> <laughs> Diana's uh, background there. But but I want to ask you this. Let me start with this. So I, I checked out your website before the interview and you described Describe yourself as a modern indigenous Native American cisgender woman. So, and I, I wanted to peel back some of that a little bit. Um, when you say you refer to yourself as, as a modern indigenous woman, like what, what do you mean like modern I- indigenous? Um, um, obviously, uh, from the way I even met you, obviously you, you cherish like your culture and, and you know, you, you speak the language and things like that. But what, what does modern indigenous mean? I think in the, in the way that I use it, I I, I kind of I like to see myself as the way I present to the world, and so the way that I present myself to the world is I like to blend both things that we recognize as, um, I guess, uh, modern American kind of um, fashion, so to speak, or you know, even my education. I would consider like something like that to be of a, a modern sense um, because I am lacking in other ways within my indigenous identities because I'm still growing in those areas. Um, but I identify as an indigenous person. My my mother is. Navajo, my father is Kiowa and Comanche. Um, and so I feel like I just try to, everything I do, I'm always trying to blend both of those things at all times. So that's interesting. And it's interesting. Like I understood that pretty well. And and I can even relate to that in a way because I'm Nigerian, right? Um, I've spent some time here in the U.S. and not a lot of time. I grew up back home in Nigeria, but I don't necessarily know how to speak the language and things like that. If I were to say I was a modern uh, Bini person, Bini being my tribe back home in Nigeria, like some of my elders and some of my family members might not take likely to that. Is it kind of like the same thing? 
because from what I understand or from what I can see from a, a um, spectator's perspective, uh, Native Americans kind of like hold dear to a lot of their cultures. Um, calling yourself more than indigenous or acting um, more than indigenous, is that something that's kind of like, I don't want to say permissible, but but how well have your family members digested that over the, the years? I mean, I think I, I feel like what happened in a lot of the experience, experiences I've had as a young person were that um, because I grew up in a, tri, a multi-tribal family, it was always like, what you know, community am I going to find myself a part of? Am I going to be part of my Kiowa family or my, you know, my Navajo family? And, you know, being called things like, you know, half breed or like you're, you're, you know, you're not full this or full that, which is. A, is that a within the culture as well? From both native and non-native people. That was, those, those were things that were kind of coming at me as a young person. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, growing up, I finally had to just kind of think about my identity as like, whatever I do is indigenous. Like I don't have to be a certain way mm-hmm. to be an indigenous person so um once I defined it for myself that was when I felt like free to just kind of be who I am and blend both what I enjoy and what I like to learn and what I like to say and sing and and listen to um but also be an indigenous person at all times so that's how I feel I feel like I move throughout the world (laughs) oh that makes sense that makes sense I guess it boils down to that whole conversation of is culture supposed to evolve in a sense and you know there are two sides of that story some people say you know culture isn't supposed to evolve like they're traditional Traditions that have been embedded in society uh, from for millennia or for centuries or whatever, and some people say for for those acts and practices to become tradition, it means they evolved from certain things and, you know, it's not supposed to stay stagnant. So I guess potato, potato, uh, that kind of makes sense. And I kind of relate to you uh, definitely in that way as well. But let's talk about, let's break down where you're from. I know you mentioned that your your maternal grandfather is Kiowa, your dad is Comanche, and your, your mom is Navajo. Um, I guess you, you more, you're closer to the Navajo side, um, if I could make that assumption. But let's break down like your lineage like you you made mention of the fact that native american society is, is mostly maternal but if you are to describe where you're from um tribe wise uh from location or geography or like ancestry how would you do that um it's interesting because i feel like it's sort of back to the question of um the common one that everyone would be like what, what's your hometown and where are you from um and i often answer that question by telling who my parents are and who my family is and so um well you can see how the paternal part of society has already embraced like my last name is Kaiwa, which is my dad's last name so uncle Aingede is my last name um and, and uncle Aingede is your last name that's your dad's last name or first name his that's last my dad, name. Uh, that's my dad's last name Got it. he was named that last name comes from our um my great great grandfather his name was uncle Aingede and upon the way that I understand it is that upon contact with Kylo people, um, Europeans couldn't pronounce it. So they just sort of like, they were just like, we're going to call you Anko. And then the rest got chopped and, and left out of the conversation. But also, I mean, it might have been a short, just a shortened version. Um, and so, yeah, my last name is Anko Aingude. But um, yeah, for Navajo people, um, if your mother is Navajo, and you have your clan, um, you're Navajo. Like, it makes no difference, like, anything else, really. I mean, you can, of course, be, you could be, like, Hopi as well, or you could be um, Ute, or you could be from another nearby tribe. But if your mother is Navajo, then you are, for all intents and purposes, you're Navajo. Like, you're Nav- um, and so but that's what, like, if, what if your mother is mixed? 
like you, for instance, like if you have kids? I do have a son. I have a little oh, boy. There we um, go. <laughs> but he, his father is Navajo as well. And so, um, but he takes my mother's clan. So the, the clan that I have, he is now Lukatsinen. So that's the clan that would get passed down for him. Um, I know it can get complicated. It's, it's, you know, there's a lot of different communities that are being brought in now. And, and for some communities, the Navajos actually do have names for them um, that they, you know, will will move into our community. So like, um, I think Mexican is Nakai. They have a name Nakai. for that. Nakai. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I'm trying to think of some other ones. If you say white, you say Bilagana. Um, Bilagana? Bilagana is like for... Uh, someone who is European or white, Bilagana. which is funny. I actually found out, I found out what Bilagana means in Navajo or what it originally meant and means the ones that we fought with. <laughs> the ones we Bilag- oh, that, that sounds about right. <laughs> the ones yeah. who say they discovered the Columbuses and stuff like that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's pretty interesting. We'll, we'll get to all the holiday stuff. Uh, obviously, a lot of history there between indigenous people in America and, you know, the would-be European settlers and things like that. But just to kind of like wrap up like your tribe, where you're from. So that means if I get it right, like it's difficult for you to say your hometown is easier to say where your parents are from because the concepts of states, the way they are in America, is a legal construct of the settlers, right? How, how in the Native American I would say community, how would you classify geographical land that belongs to certain tribes? Is there, is there a, a, an ancient uh, way where different tribes agree that, okay, like beyond the hill is this tribe, uh, down the stream is that tribe? And how does that work in today's society with like 50 states or 48 states on the inland? Well, I mean, um, you're right. So when I do answer where I'm from, I often say where my mother's. So I'll say where our family, which is Monument Valley, Utah. Uh, and you might have seen images of it. It's like in it's in a lot of movies, like John Wayne movies, um, Forrest Gump, and stuff like that. They they go to Monument Valley for all these picturesque scenes. So I usually say I'm from there, but um, I I did grow up in uh, Norman, Oklahoma. Was where I was from, from my my um, my father's side. Oklahoma. Yeah, in Oklahoma. Um, and even, I mean, Oklahoma in itself, the name is, I believe, in Choctaw. I think it's in the Choctaw language, the term Oklahoma. It might be Chickasaw. I forget. Okay, it's interesting you, you mentioned Forrest Gump and a, co- a couple of other pop cultural references. Like, I, I, I would say in my interaction with like Native American culture in pop culture, I tend to come across the Navajo specifically. Is, is it safe to say that's the biggest tribe? How many tribes are there? Uh, is it even possible to quantify the number of tribes in the Native American community? Yeah, um, there's a lot of data that's missing. That's definitely a theme among all Indigenous peoples as there's a lot of missing data for us in every regard you can think of. Um, but yes, Navajo, based on the records that the U.S. has right now, um, Navajo Nation is the largest. Got it, got it. And and how, how many people would you say are in the Navajo Nation, if you could make like an estimate? It's like close to 400,000. Oh, wow. That's that's very little. Yeah. I mean, yeah, when I think about it in comparison to other other tribes, so I'm just like, yeah, we kind of get, we get uh, teased, you know, because like, they're like, Navajos are everywhere. <laughs> Is that is that because Navajo people kind of like venture out beyond like Native American territories? Is that safe to say or not really? 
No, I don't think that. I think there's, you know, there's a lot of adventurous indigenous peoples out there. It's just, it's just, you know, Navajos are that that tribe that, you know, kind of like the the kid in the classroom you just want to like kind of pick on, mm. you know, it's all in good fun. Interesting way of describing it. Interesting way. <laughs> okay, talk to me about growing up. So you grew up in Norman, Oklahoma. Um, how was it like for you? Did you grow up in the Native American Reserve? Did you have like a regular upbringing? How soon did your parents start to bring to your consciousness like your heritage and your tribe, that kind of thing? How um, young were you? Yeah, I was, um, I want to say I was before I went into kindergarten, my parents were telling my sisters, and I grew up with, uh, there's four girls, and I'm the youngest, um, and uh, my parents, very early on, they always practiced with, with us. They were like, remember, if anyone asks you, you're Native American, and you're these three tribes, and they always tried to make sure that we remembered to never leave one of those out, so we always made sure that we mentioned all three of them. Um, and I grew up in a very predominantly white community, uh, very few Native people. It was usually my sisters and I who made up the, the larger portion of the Natives in the school. Um, my dad was definitely um, someone who wanted us to be a little more um, like progressive, I guess, in a sense. He, he told us, he was like, hey, you know, you don't have to say the Pledge of Allegiance. <laughs> you know, our communities and our people were here first and you can say it, but you don't have to. Just know that. <laughs> Oh, so that's a thing? I didn't know that was a thing. Well, it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Actually, you know, I never really thought about that. Because like in schools in the what's now known as the United States, they they have the Pledge of Allegiance said every morning in most public schools. I don't even know if they do that in other countries. Like they are they do. Pledge? Yeah, you, you sing like national anthem and you have like the pledge in Nigeria and most other countries as well in school. So yeah. that, that's interesting. What did your dad do? Like what, what made him want to raise his kids as uh, like you say, progressive? Like what, what was uh, his plan for his kids? What, what did he do? for work and, and and how was it growing up in that white community for for you guys as kids well both my parents um they were working class they my mom you know growing up she was like um i think she worked in like the cafeteria at the local university my dad at the time he wasn't working so he took care of the kids um but he you know he just kind of picked up jobs around here and around there but like he he was a really big on history and he was really into um the american indian movement and so i learned about leonard peltier um very early on i learned about the aim movement um i was you know my dad was just very passionate about making sure that we knew who we were and that we pre-existed the country that is here today that was really important to him yeah, yeah. I mean, a sense of history is is often lost, if not like ingrained uh, in kids when they're much younger. And uh, there's a tendency for, you know, culture and stuff to just be lost in history to be forgotten, especially for like a community as important as the Native American community. But did you get to go outside and play? Did you have any like weird interactions? I'm not sure if you like wore the clothes of the Navajo people and things like that when you were younger. Uh, did you get teased in any way? Did that adults pick on you or did you just have like a regular childhood in Oklahoma given that you know Oklahoma is a state where we have um, you know at least uh, communities of Native Americans compared to other states? Yeah I mean um, growing up in, in Norman it was a little isolating I feel like most of the Native people that I knew were my family and that was like the only time we really saw other Native people and when we did we were like oh <laughs> you're just like <laughs> really <laughs> can you always tell like when you see someone who's Native American, like if the person doesn't put on like uh, like the jewelry or clothes, can you tell? Is there a way you can tell? 
I mean, I feel like I, there's, you know, you can, um, the native people in Oklahoma, I feel like they do look a little different than when I go to the Southwest in, you know, the Navajo nation, there are, they just kind of look different, but I feel like I can, I don't know if I feel like they look like my cousin or something that I'm just like, <laughs> like, are they native? I don't know. Like, oh, you know. Okay, but, so I mean, like, it's more, more like physical features kind of thing. So it's not it's not like you just know based on an aura around them or something. <laughs> no. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> well, what kind of community activities did you guys participating growing up? I mean, when I was younger, um, watching cartoons, and I know mo- most of those cartoons didn't do a good job in depicting all cultures, uh, you know, not just Native American, but I was introduced to the powwow. Like, did you have things like that growing up? What kind of community activities did you participate in as a kid? The majority of, I think, my younger years was powwows. And so we, my family, we used to attend them. We used to... Um, um, I, I used to dance um, fancy shawl when I was really, really tiny. Um, and then as I got older, I went to actually, I went to a tribal boarding school for my high school. Oh, really? I did. Yes. That must have <laughs> been interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's, it, it was, I think overall it was good. It was good. Um, but while I was there, we did a lot of um, like stomp dancing was practiced and we played stickball. Stickball is so fun. Um, things like that. Okay. What well, what is stickball? <laughs> well, have you heard of lacrosse? I have heard of lacrosse. So that's that actually it? what that's what the the game is. Um, what it's inspired from stickball originally. Um, but it's played differently. So there's you know the Creeks, the Creek Nation, or Muscogee people. They play differently from Choctaw, and they play differently from the Mohawks. And you know it's a little different all over. Okay. Okay. So um, obviously, like your your dad went a step further to make sure you guys were ingrained in the culture by sending you to a tribal boarding school. But how big was the school? Um, was it too big? And a boarding school? Like I went to a boarding school. I, I went to a military boarding school. So I know how that can get uh you have a lot of like elders and older people and people in higher classes to contend with how was it like going to a tribal boarding school did you feel that had um positive impact in you learning more about your people how was it just like socially did you guys used to sneak away to go do stuff <laughs> you know i mean this is years later so you, you feel free to <laughs> <laughs> Um, I really enjoyed it. I, I think it helped my transition into going to college, like, you know, the whole moving away and, and being acclimated to be like my independent self. Um, that really helped, I think. Um, but I really enjoyed it because I could just focus on like just my studies. And I focused a lot on trying to make sure I found like scholarships when it was time for me to go to college all of those things. And um, everyone there was Native. And so um, I met a lot of my lifelong friends there. Um, nice. Yeah. So like, I'm still very close with a good group of them today. Would you would you say it was a big school? Like how many students do you think were there at any one given time? Uh, like a thousand less? No. Yeah. My, my graduating class was only about 110, I think. So it wasn't too bad. It's probably in total like four or 500 students together, but they've actually, they've expanded it. So it's no longer just nine, 10, 11, 12. It's um, I think six, seventh and eighth as well. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Okay. But it's it's um, owned and operated by the Cherokee Nation. So they teach care. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Now, was that, was it free to go to that school or, or no? It was. it was. And it's interesting. Let me, let me kind of follow up with that. Since you talked about your graduating class, 
to questions that might be somewhat ignorant, but, you know, just by way of me trying to, you know, understand more about your culture, your heritage, where you're from, um, you mentioned about, you know, studying hard to kind of like get um, scholarships into the university. So I know it's like kind of like wrong to use one scenario to kind of like judge a whole people, but you have situations where when I went to college, I went to college in DC and some people try to claim like, uh, you know, 116th or 132nd Native American or 118th Native American so they can get some scholarship you know, tuition reimbursement and things like that. And it's generally like out there in the ethos that, oh, if you're Native American, then you might not necessarily have to spend a dime on school. Like, is it, how easy is it to like get, was it to get scholarships when you were graduating and trying to go to college? Um, did you have the impression that, oh, you know, I can pretty much go to any school I want because, you know, everyone is looking for kind of like Native American students or you still had to like put in that work to to get what you want kind of thing? Oh, man, that is probably the most infuriating um, stereotype <laughs> for me um, because I, you know, I've been in school for so long now. Um, we do not go to college free. That is an absolute false narrative that for whatever reason, people like to um, just eat it up, <laughs> but it's not true in any sense. Yeah. Um, certain tribes can offer funding to their tribal members. Um, and the funding is very uh, depends. Like my tribe gives a little bit, but not in comparison to some tribes who are smaller and they just have a little bit of funding. Um, there are certain scholarship programs that are for Native American students only, but it's, you know, it's it's difficult to find all these opportunities and to, to you know, be eligible for all of them. Um, but you also have tribal colleges and universities. So I don't know if you're into, you know, aware of those kinds of situations, but there are tribal colleges, um, tribal universities. That oh, what, what is one a popular one? I, I wasn't aware of that. Oh, um, Diné College is oh. the first tribal college in, in what's now known as the United States. Um, so that's the oldest one, I suppose. Um, but they, you know, it's completely run um, by Native people, by Navajo people, and they have their own curriculum design. They have language courses. They have culture courses. Um, and nice. not just Navajo people go there. I've, I've met people who've gone there who are non, non-Navajo or non-Native for that matter. Nice, nice, nice. Now, what about the, you know, my last ignorant question, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> What about the the 18 money? Like from what I understand, like certain tribes, particularly tribes who like have casinos, I'm not sure if all tribes participate in the uh, gaming industry, uh, but there was this documentary I watched that in certain tribes when people turn like 18 or most like high school seniors are like giving a bunch of money, like, I don't know, ranging from like 20 to like 40 or 50, 50K. Is that like a thing? Is it spread across all tribes or just like a subset? No, yeah, that's that's. Um, 100% not true for every Native person um, that is part of a federally recognized tribe. That's not true. Um, my tribe, we didn't have casinos until more recent, um, and that it was a huge controversial um, topic for Navajo people. And a lot of that money doesn't ever even go directly to people. It goes to services. It goes to like, you know, education. It goes to, you know, social programs and those kinds of things mm-hmm. benefit the Navajo as a whole. Um, but some tribes, so you have um, like Eastern Band Cherokee um, of North Carolina, they they do give out what is called per cap to their, their citizens. And so some tribes have it and some do not. 
I got nothing when I turned 18. Uh, got like a thumbs up, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> thumbs up. <laughs> a pat on the back kind of thing. <laughs> oh, interesting. So you eventually went to college and you spent a lot of time in school. You eventually went on to get your PhD. And I guess, uh, you know, congratulations are in order. That's like a couple of months old now. Um, but I could see like from your profile that you had gone to college to, to study things relating to Indigenous people. So whether that's uh, indigenous studies or organizational leadership. Uh, is there a theme there? Is there a plan there? Um, why, why did you decide um, you wanted to um, study, you know, about Native American culture, like in an educational setting in that sense? Or do you have plans to kind of like go back to teach or, or, or help, uh, you know, Native American students in the future? What was uh, the reason behind uh, your education? Yeah, so I chose my specific program at Northern Arizona University. It's called Applied Indigenous Studies. And the biggest reason why I chose that, and I'm so glad I chose it for my undergraduate, is because um, they focus on indigeneity across the world. And so the curriculum was designed for us to understand, um, respect, and appreciate Indigenous peoples not within the domestic, you know, United States. It was like everywhere, Canada, Mexico, South Nice. Um, but all over. And I um, had never, you know, been challenged intellectually in that way. And it was a, an area that I just never heard of. And so um, that captured my interest. Um, and, and so once I kind of had that foundation back in, um, gosh, 2012, I think is when I graduated from college. Um, and then, you know, I studied abroad in Australia and worked with uh, the Noongar community in Western Australia. And, um, but I decided that, you know, higher education was my, was my area of passion. I wanted to work with Indigenous students as they go into college. And so I got my master's, of course, in um, higher higher and post-secondary education, uh, focusing on like graduate professional students. And then my doctorate was focused on um, graduation study or graduation experiences with undergraduates. So um, it always did. And you did all this out of stretch, like no break or anything? (laughs) I did take two years off and I was a a classroom teacher. I taught second grade for a little while. I don't oh know my. if that's two years off. PhD, that's like what, five, six years, undergrad, four years, master's, two years. That, that's like 11 years, 11 or 12 years of studying. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm just kind of. Piece of cake, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, so, like I so like, I mean, you know, I can, I can do this again. <laughs> I didn't try all the time. <laughs> <laughs> is that, no, is that a thing? Uh, like, I have a lot of PhD students that like who encourage me to like apply for a PhD. Like, one of them, I, I was actually, I think I actually applied to Delaware, but I didn't end up going. But I was like, look, like all my PhD students, I've witnessed them calling me at one point in time talking about philosophical stuff. Like, it's one a.m. in the morning. It's like, no, sir. What's the purpose <laughs> of life? Like this PhD thing. If we think about it, <laughs> like getting all philosophical. I mean, like, dude. I'm, I'm sleeping, man. <laughs> That's when the best ideas happen, is like you know, 1 a.m. in the morning. Got it, got it. And what was your thesis on for your PhD? Um, that was on um, Native American. Oh, I'm trying to think of the entire title. I'm always like, just look it up, but no. It's like a, a graduation graduation data for undergraduate students and um, student service. So I was trying to understand like the correlation between our graduation rates mm-hmm. and impact from university staff university faculty um 
So yeah, that was my my doctoral studies, and uh, now I'm at Yale, and I, I manage the Native American Cultural Center here. Uh, oh, there's a Native American Cultural Center at Yale. There is. Nice. Yeah. Surprising, right? <laughs> and what's what's this? What does the center do? Because I know there are all the centers. Like we have the where I went to school in America, and we had the anti anti racism center. I was like, huh, that's that's interesting. <laughs> Given the fact that you see bananas floating on campus every now and then, but uh, what what does the Native American Center at Yale do? Um, so we do we're we're really a hub for our indigenous students. That's really what it is. It's a it's a place for our indigenous students to come together, create community. Um, and we try to share, you know, our cultural um, events or knowledge, but we also invite our allies to be there with us. So it's, I mean, it is some, nice. it's a place for students, um, for the Yale community, um, but we also invite others and we invite community members, you know, faculty to join us there. Uh, and I, I kind of, I manage the building, I supervise students, and I do a lot of the programming. Nice, nice. And obviously, from going to school so long, like you understood the college setting so you can like put younger students through. But while you were in college, I mean, you, you, you went to what, Northern, Northern Arizona for undergrad? You went to, where did you go for your master's and PhD? Um, Arizona State was for my master's. And then okay. I went the University of Southern California. Oh, wow. Those are three different schools. Usually, like, someone who just goes straight to PhD usually does it at one school. But mm-hmm. what what was, like, your experience, like, especially, like, in California, being Native American? Was it different? You, you mentioned how going to a tribal high school kind of, like, prepared you for the college experience in a way. Um, how was your experience at a, at a, as a Native American? Uh, how much did you miss home while in college? Mm-hmm. I mean... My time in Arizona, it, I had family around all the time. I could just go back to the Navajo Nation pretty frequently. Um, but with USC, it was a little different. Um, I had some pretty interesting experiences that were very frustrating because you you want to believe that you know people at a certain level are you know know how to behave themselves or like know Never. how to. <laughs> Never. <laughs> I guess my expectations are way too high. Never. Um, but you know, I, I was at USC and I remember like I had my hair in a CS, so which is like a Navajo bun. Mm-hmm. And um Do you have like a I, pen in there as well, or you just have like the bun? It's it's a certain uh, you might be able to look it up if you ever get to if you look up Navajo bun. It's it's like I don't know how to describe it, <laughs> but you like use yarn to wrap your hair. And I had my hair in a Navajo bun um, in a siesta, and uh, I had a skirt on, and I had my my moccasins on, and I it was just kind of this blend, this blend of like you know clothes, but also my moccasin, my hair was nicely wrapped and stuff. And one of my cohort members, you know, asked me if I was a native enthusiast. And I was like, <laughs> wait, 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 let me. That was California, right? That's, that <laughs> sounds that sounds Californian. <laughs> I was so taken aback. Oh like, goodness me, a native enthusiast. It was so bizarre. I had to. I asked him. I was like, "Are you serious?" And then he goes, "Yeah." And I could just see it in his face, like he was calculating what he was just asking me. Um, and I had to explain to him, I'm like, I'm Native American. I'm like, I don't know what else to tell you, but <laughs> not an enthusiast. Um, I also had another young man ask me, or no, he was laughing with me. And then he just goes, oh, you look like Pocahontas. And I was, I looked at him with all seriousness. And I was just like, don't, don't call me that. And then he goes, no, I'm just being, you're beautiful. You look like Pocahontas. And I'm like, seriously, I need you to stop calling that. And it was just so infuriating that I was still trying to navigate these conversations with an adult, you know? Mm-hmm. 
like um as an immigrant um like I, I always ask myself how much do we forgive like how much do we chalk up to ignorance or like because at a point like you you get tired of like correcting or explaining and some people's approach might be somewhat innocent just by the way they deliver a certain message maybe they don't know that that thing is uh inappropriate or that word or that gesture or that act or whatever um but you you i, I find myself asking that question that should i like do i chalk it up to ignorance or do i like spaz out on this person or do i use it as a teachable moment like it's pretty interesting like you're 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 trying to educate yourself while you're in college but you find yourself educating other people and the uh, average american if i can say this myself from what i've observed isn't too like whenever I talk to people about my podcast, for instance, like Nigeria is a country of like almost 400 different tribes. My dad was in the military, like, I'm from a multicultural family, so like, interacting with different cultures, I'm you know fairly well traveled, so it's not new to me, but I think it is for the average American. Like, I don't know how many people like actually venture out there. I think there was a study I, I read once that less than 30% or 40% of Americans have international passports. Most people just like live in one state. And because everyone is trying to, most people speak two languages, like they speak the American language and they speak their language. Like maybe Americans think that it's not just necessary to learn other languages. And when I say language, I mean, you know, Know, a, a cultural identity or you know how other groups of people you know kind of like act but but it's pretty interesting um i guess you know we, it, it is what it is um do our best to build a sense of community within our immediate community and educate those who are willing which is honestly why this podcast is here you know we're trying our best to you know for those interested listeners who are interested about learning about other things we're kind of like here for them um, but let me ask this, within the Native American culture, um, I don't know, I must, I must have said I'm Nigerian on this podcast like a hundred times, but I'm going to keep going back to that. Like in Nigeria as well, we have tribalism, funny enough. So there's racism on, on one hand, there's tribalism that even amongst a nation of Black people, besides the classism talk, which is in every nation, you have people saying that, oh, this tribe, you know, 400 or 500 years ago, this is what happened. So this is how we tag these people. Those people are over there. The people from the north are over here. The people from the south are over there. Are there things like that between tribes in the Native American community where you have cases of tribalism or historic uh, cases of either discrimination or things like that amongst different tribes in the Native American community? There, I mean, I know that that gets brought up every now and then um, between certain tribes. Um, like, it'll come up usually jokingly about how certain tribes um, were enemies at some point. Um, but a good example of, of like sort of a fairly recent um, tension, I think it might even still probably, it probably exists still today, but like between the Navajos and the Hopis. Um, but that it truly is a result of colonization. Um, it was because, you know, someone was trying to draw these lines, you know, this is your land and this is, you know, the Hopis land. And all of a sudden we're like, what? Like, you know, it's it's sort of just drawing ten there it was as is it was as if they were designing it for so that we would fight each other, you know, and not be mad at who is drawing the lines, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, that, that kind of like sounds like the Berlin conference where they divided Africa into fifty-two states or countries or whatever. Oh well, yeah, well, I 
I'm not up to my, <laughs> my history <laughs> in that regard. But no, I, will totally say, <laughs> I will say that I'm learning a lot because um, I, I could have mentioned this earlier, but I'm teaching a class this spring. Okay. Um, at Yale and it's indigenous cultures in a global context. And I'm doing um, four units where I study, um, we focus on indigeneity in Australia, South America, North America, and Africa. And so I've been trying to, I I would say that, you know, Africa has been difficult for me because I I, I just, it's completely been off my radar in for most of my life um, in studying indigenous peoples. But um, so when you were talking about tribalism from, you know, Nigeria, that was really interesting for me because I'm still, I'm currently still learning about it. I mean, Africa is so diverse. It's, it's not one place, but hey, all you need to do is like buy a plane ticket or something. I don't know if you're, you're doing a field study, maybe not now during the pandemic, but, you know, like eventually. Um, but yeah, uh, a few minutes ago, you mentioned like different things, like you talked about the moccasins. I had no idea that had, um, is that? Uh, Native American origination, the moccasins? I believe so. I mean, that's what we call them. Um, I mean, it's essentially just, you know, the kind of shoes we wore. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's an actual brand called moccasins, right? Like Um, a a fashion brand called moccasins. And it was very popular while I was growing up in Nigeria. Um, I don't know how popular it is here. But I, I asked that to to ask, you know, when you hear about, you know, like stickball, lacrosse, moccasins, the mohawk hairstyle, you know, things like that. When you see things like that in pop culture and, you know, with the Native American enthusiasts and things like that, do you get like infuriated saying that, hey, you know, these things have significant meaning, they're part of certain rituals and they shouldn't be taken as a fashion item? Or do you mm-hmm. feel more proud that, hey, this is... Uh, people not indigenous to our culture by embracing our culture. Uh, we, I guess maybe it's a bit of both. I don't know, but what is it for you? Yeah, it's 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 a really difficult conversation to navigate. I did not know that there was a company called Moccasins. <laughs> I'll just say that because, you know, moccasins look different. Like Kiowa and Comanche moccasins look completely different from Navajo moccasins or Hopi moccasins. You know, like the Pueblo. It might, it might be a European brand. Maybe it's not American. I don't know where it comes from, but I know it was super popular like when I was kind of like in high school or, or primary school or something in Nigeria yeah. specifically. Yeah, um, appropriation is is a huge topic within Native American communities now, and it's something that a lot of people within, you know, you know, I feel like I always think about it like my Facebook feed and my Instagram feed would probably just look completely different from, you know, the person sitting next to me. And, you know, it's a big conversation that we have or that I see within the people that I follow that appropriation is just, you know, it's it's thriving in a lot of these spaces. And it's unfortunate because they're taking, um, you know, design and inspiration from Native people, but taking all the profit and giving no credit to Indigenous communities. Mm, fact, fact. I, I guess uh, that's popular in capitalism for the most part. Like um, a lot of people just look for ways uh, to make money out of certain cultures and, and maybe not necessarily either paying reverence to that culture or explaining with the history behind what you're doing or even like kind of like giving back uh, to that culture in a way. Um, but talk to me about some of the other communities that you kind of like had a chance to interact with. That might be through travel. I know you talked about Western Australia. That might be through your education uh, in those, uh, you know, different papers you wrote at 1 a.m. during your PhD or things like 
like that? Or like what other places have you gone to? What other communities have you interacted with? And has there been something that, oh, you didn't really know until you got into the books or you went there about a certain tribe or, or, or country or community? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a lot of interesting things happening um, with Indigenous communities across the world. Um, Australia really opened my eyes in a lot of ways. Um, it was the first time I got called a Yankee. <laughs> I was like, I got called a Yankee while I was in Australia. Interesting. <laughs> I was like, oh, what? <laughs> I was like so upset. Um, but you know, because I was I was working with a lot of the um, Indigenous. Australian people there, um, I saw a lot of like firsthand just the racism, the blatant racism that was occurring for that community in Perth, mm-hmm. Australia. Um, so that, that was, that, and it was like a kind of like in your face kind of thing. And I, I hadn't, I hadn't experienced that in a while. Um, but while I was there, I also went to um, Bali, Indonesia, uh, and that was more so for 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 fun. Um, but, you know, everyone there thought I was um, you know, a local person, which was interesting. They thought I was like giving a tour to American people. <laughs> I was with two friends of mine. <laughs> interesting. Um, and that's interesting in itself because you know it, it made me think a little bit deeper about um, the the way that tourism impacts Indigenous people. So I remember as a young child, you know, a friend of mine. Um, I met her at a College Horizons, which is a program that helps Native students get into college. And she told she was telling me about the struggles of tourism uh, in the Hawaiian Islands. And she told me that you know she said she said it's really tough. Like they they just come here for you know this certain experience, and they create a lot of trash and all these things. And I, oh my gosh! And I told her I was like, is there anything I can do? I asked her. You know, I was probably like 16 at the time. And I was like, is there anything I can do to to help you? And she was like, don't ever come to the islands. And I was like, that's fair. So, um, yeah, that was a, that was a really interesting conversation coming from, you know, another young person. And so I, I I tried to think about it in that way. And unless I have like a purpose, like say I'm, you know, going to somewhere to impact an indigenous community in some way, like being invited somewhere, you know, not really going for touristy kind of reasons that I, you know, I really want to think about the impact that it's having for certain communities. You know, it's interesting you said that you mentioned Indonesia, because there was a girl who trended on Twitter a few days ago, specifically about going to Bali, you know, she was kind of like breaking, I think she had a YouTube channel or something, she was kind of like breaking down the steps on how you can go to Indonesia during uh, the pandemic, and you know, it's, uh, you know, which uh, average salary you can be there, and then all these Indonesians kind of like flooded the tread, and like, we're talking about how tourists come here, and the city is getting more and more expensive for them who are locals and like restauranters and you know um people in the service industry don't treat them well because they are not foreign and they are not carrying dollars like the tourists are and how it's just affecting the economy and they're kind of like being pushed out of their own land it's, it's interesting you said that you know someone from hawaii kind of like telling you that and i interviewed someone on this podcast from jamaica and she was kind of like saying the same thing mm-hmm. as well so i guess there's a flip side to tourism that in a sense even though it brings in some kind of revenue you know it's not it 
most tourist programs might not be structured in a way where it, it ensures that, you know, some of that money is flowing back and there's active participation, kind of like in a sense, because you have, you know, some investors like from China and different places going to invest in hotels and all these places, and they're not even from that land, and they're making all the all the tourist dollars and things like that. But yeah, that's pretty interesting. I guess problems like that will never, never really fade away. But let me ask you this, like, what, what do you think? think like we're on a podcast right what do you think uh Americans, should I say Americans, let, let me narrow it down to Americans, need to understand more about the Native American community. Like, is there a certain misconception out there? I know we talked about the scholarship thing. Um, is, is there a way to interact uh, respectfully with the traditions and, you know, cultures uh, that emanate from the Native American community? Is there just something you wish you could snap your finger and, you know, people stop doing or do less of or even do more of, you know, on the flip side, Concerning like Native Americans, man, that's a that's a big question. <laughs> um, let's see. Wow, there's well, there's a there's a lot. I'm thinking of so many different things. Um, if I could snap my fingers and something, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like <laughs> thinking about. I'm already thinking of like 1491. <laughs> like turn those boats around, go back to where they Um, I mean. Given where we are today, gosh, if I could snap my fingers, I would really just, I mean, dang, that's so hard. I would truly wish that the educational system in the United States was different. If I could snap my fingers, I wish that out, like history was written by Native people. You know, McGraw-Hill is not doing anyone, you know, any, any benefit Facts. by the way that they have designed their history and their curriculum. Facts. So that's that's what I'm thinking of. And that's with everything. That's with the Native American story. That's with the Confederacy. That's with slavery. That's that's with everything. Yeah, I think that we. I think we'd have. Um, it wouldn't be like the end all be all, but I think we might be having different conversations if that were. You know, you know, we have a saying where I come from um, that um, the saying goes like this: that until a lion learns to speak English, the story will always favor the hunter. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's kind of like self-explanatory in that sense. But, you know, um, but hey, you know, America, I guess, has done a good job in, in the PR and publicity around the world. You know, thanks to Hollywood and Silicon Valley and all these places like, um, you know, you think America is kind of like a, a, a place, you know, uh, this is me talking as an immigrant, you know, paved with or flowing with milk and honey and whatnot. And even though there are, you know, economic opportunities in this country, you know, you come here and you just see systems that are broken left, right, and center. And you just start to imagine, oh, wow, that this is crazy. You know, this is even me who, you know, has a home to go back to. Like, I can identify what village I come from. I can identify my lineage. But there are some people, you know, like African-Americans in, in particular, who don't even have that. You know, and they're just trapped, you know, kind of like in a system that doesn't like have the best for them as, you know, uh, and Native Americans, I guess, in a way as well. But it's pretty, it's pretty bad. Like, what, what do you think? What what do you want to do? How do you think you can change some of this? How do you think you can chip away in some of this problem? Do you think um, education is the way you can give back? Just continue telling those stories, making sure younger people who come up just realize things and maybe being that bridge between like Americans and Native Americans. Or do you think there are other ways? Do you think economic empowerment is the way like what we're having with the casinos, like more of that? Like, what do you think uh, uh, is the way to reduce some of those gaps? Yeah, I think 
um, the way that I, as a grown adult now, I, well, I'm trying to be an adult, <laughs> but we all are. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like I'm trying to, I guess, fill the world with the way that I understand myself. I want the world that indigenous peoples today can look, look this way and still be native. Um, and they are filled with Westerns. They're filled with, um, um, romantic ideas of what native people are and i mean with the the recent capital um domestic terrorism that individual who had the fur on his head and stuff he claimed he got it from an out it is completely false no one no one from the indigenous community claims him he did <laughs> he claims it was like from a navajo something or other and Wait, is it, is it the same guy who says he eats organic food and he needs organic food in prison that do <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> How are those guys learn mm -hmm. shot? I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that's a whole other thing, but everyone, you know, in the indigenous world was very upset and mm -hmm. offended. Yeah. Shook by that. Um, but I mean, I am trying to feel I like I don't know if uh, I mentioned this earlier, but I do have a YouTube channel where I talk about being a native person and talking about um, the college experience and tips for native students who are thinking of going to grad school or going into a doctorate. Um, and it's only because, you know, I want to be able to provide, like provide my, my story of what it's been like for me. And also because not a lot of native people, um, well, not a lot, but I feel like I just, I want to be a part of that community where we're talking more about like us day and not allowing um, stories of the past to really like be our main story. And that's why I really appreciate like indigenous fashion designers, indigenous movie makers, all of those individuals. They're, they're helping to be part of it. Mm -hmm. Most definitely. And, you know, hopefully, you know, we'll have the link to our YouTube channel in the episode show notes. So if you want to check out more of that, we can do that as well. I guess we all have a role to play regardless of where we find ourselves in, whether that's in education, whether that's in business, technology, we can always do something to, and even though some of these challenges might not be resolved or might not be ever resolved, but we can always make things better, chip, chip away at things, you know, we're recording this on January the 19th, uh, the day before the inauguration. And even though, like, historically, uh, the U.S. Uh, hasn't been fair to, like, uh, Native Americans, uh, we can only hope that can get better with each, uh, you know, administration uh, in the coming years, particularly, like, with this administration, which is not the last administration, I'll leave it at that. But, uh, <laughs> my man, uh, um, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, you guys, if, you know, you guys came here and I'm talking to my listeners. Um, thinking of, you know, having like a documentary form, like very philosophical, educational questions. Uh, you know, my style, like I try to have a casual conversation with my guests, throwing some jokes in there and hopefully uh, that way pass some important information. Uh, but yeah, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Diana. I always like to give my guests like a couple of minutes at the end of the episode to like say something like you have the floor. Like if you want to just like drop your social media, I know you talked about your YouTube channel, or you want to give like a, a last word of advice, or you want to speak to yourself uh, in the future, uh, whatever it is, uh, you kind of have to do that. Um, sure. Well, I mean, I think about a lot of the movements that Indigenous peoples are doing, whether it's for um, Mother Earth or if it's for um, land rights or, you know, clean water, wherever it might be. I, I always think of um, Tupac Katari and, and his his quote of being, you know, he was doing the same thing. And it, he said, you know, I die as one, but when I return, I return in the millions. 
And I think that that's something that indigenous peoples have always known. Like we know that we we believe in um, our communities and our values, and we're going to continue to fight for them no matter what it takes. Got it. Most definitely. And can you please wrap up like the episode with your mother tongue? Maybe just say thank you for having me. Goodbye. That kind of thing. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, um, Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I hope you're all taking care of yourselves. Um, means take care of yourself. And hagone. Bye. Hagone. There we go. Hagone. Thank, <laughs> thank you so much. I'm sorry I just butchered that. But yeah. Um, thank you guys for listening. Uh, as usual, follow us everywhere. Scholarship Class Podcast. Check out our website. Drop a voice note. Tell us what you think about the episode. Check out Diana's YouTube channel as well. Say hello to her on social media. And stop asking her if she's a Native American enthusiast. For Christ's sakes, people, behave. <laughs> All right, guys. Till next time, be well.